Welcome back to episode 96 of Chess Journeys, Tales of Adult Improvement. Here on Chess Journeys, we seek to, yes, look at the highs and glories of ratings gain, but really dive into the plateaus, which are more the norms, and every now and then, the pits of despair. If you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon Chess Journeys, and I want to thank Matt Bush, Jay Garrison, Donna Rich Burgess, Brandon Hallside, David Schreiber, Lindsay Newhall, and Jeff Peterson. You can get merch from the merch store. Ooh, I haven't even checked lately. My daughter is going to want to know how many mugs have been sold. Every day, she's like, Dad, we should make a new thing. What if we made Chess Journeys Legos? And I'm like, I don't think it works like that. Uh, so just, just to be clear, you cannot buy Chess Journeys Legos. If you find them, they're a knockoff. All right. I have been streaming a lot on um, Dr. Skull underscore Tiny Grimes, playing quite a bit of 5-5, trying to turn my knowledge into skill over there. Um, and if you enjoyed the interview last week with Noel Studer, and you want to join his next level training, um, I have a link below. It supports the, the show if you join that way. Also, you know, it's, it's a good training program. All right. This week, we're going to bring on a repeat guest. We have Nick. Uh, he's a founding member of the Chess Monk Punks. He is a returning guest from episode 43. And he's been asking for a bit. He's like, hey, man, I got some new stuff to talk about. And I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, and I like to do that, where I like, you get even more new stuff. And then recently I saw him post on Twitter this amazing thing about all the annotated games he's been going through. And I thought, you know what? It is time to get back on with Nick. Let's see what his progress has been like. I don't even know if he's gained rating points. It's not about that for me. I really just want to see what he's been up for, to for the last year. It'll be kind of sad if he's lost like 100 points. We're going to hope that's not the case. All right, Nick. Welcome to the show, and have you had a chance to play any chess yet today? Uh, hey, Kevin, thanks for the introduction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've had plenty of chance to to play some chess today. I didn't do a count, but uh, let's see. Since I've woken up, woken, is that a word? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven Blitz games on Elite Chess throughout the day. Okay, and what's a Blitz game to you? I play five plus three now. Oh, okay. I think before when we were talking i used to just play straight five minute and i had a couple mm -hmm. of coaching sessions with shivam and he suggested increment and i completely agree with that suggestion ever since so it's been basically nothing but five plus three or anything that i play has an increment because that more reflects real life conditions than not yeah i agree it kind of depends on what your goal is right if your goal is to like improve your classical chess the closest thing you can get in blitz is having that increment I try mm -hmm. to play five five. I don't know if you've tried this. Lee chess doesn't even count that as blitz. It's right, like oh, you rapid. Want a rapid game. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I call that blitz. <laughs> uh, I have been doing this other thing where I'm like, I should practice being faster. So I've started playing some three two. And what I realized is I can't play three two. Three two isn't even chess for me. It's oh, okay. Like, it's almost like a whole different game I'm playing where it's like all intuition, all speed. Uh, very little calculation. Just for some reason, that 5-5 five, five gives me just enough room to actually kind of treat it like a fast, rapid game rather mm -hmm. than like a slow blitz game. So I don't know, just a distinction I've been able to make. Yeah, I I delved into 3-2 um, like late last year in a bid to get to the Legend League in chess.com. And I don't really play on chess.com, but 3-2 was the like the best arena speed that I found to just get a lot of trophies to get to Legend in chess.com. Now, I have no reason to do that other than it says Legend, and I just wanted to try. So I played a lot of 3-2, but other than that, I'm with you. Uh, 5 plus 3. I mean, even like 5-0, which I used to play, 
it feels too fast. And I think part of it is I've like learned how to just actually win a one game as opposed to flagging mm-hmm. the crud out of my opponent if I'm up material and time. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of playing with increment teaches you good habits, I think. Yeah, I agree. Also, the chess.com leagues. That's where I play most of my games. Mm. I'm the silver league. So it's really annoying. I'm like, I play a fair amount. How am I still in the silver league? Yeah. So the, so the, this is like not really improvement related, but it is kind of interesting if you want to get higher in the chess.com league, is that arenas give you extra trophies compared to just playing a regular old game if you were just to go to the play server if you actually enter an arena you get extra trophies for your wins but you also get extra trophies if you win multiple games in a row if you get a streak that increases how many trophies you get after each game so that's why i chose to do the arena to do that so if you really want if you really want to get high up there then maybe try try uh, doing the arenas but also you, you have to be strategic about it because there's a lot of five five arenas man they're all like i know you you got to do three plus two and you also have to look at your league to see who's you have to like you have to actively watch who's catching up to you and if there's somebody who's like on a tear gaining hundreds and hundreds of trophies (laughs) you just have to out arena them so yeah like i said this is not improvement based advice i'm just saying if you want to get to legend that's how you would do it okay that's how i did it i mean not only am i in silver but i finished like in 40th place in silver every week that's the sad part i'm like what who are all these people that just play endless games i know it's crazy and their rating doesn't matter their rating doesn't matter yeah they just play and play and play and if they're having fun you know what i have to say good on you exactly as long as you're having fun (laughs) so i just ignore it i just completely ignore it because there was one week where i was like you know what kevin you're gonna do it this week, and I did like thirtieth, and I was like, "Oh man!" Do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh well. Um, so I think a good place to start here is just a sort of a baseline. Like, what was your rating the last time you were here by whatever metric you you want to use, mm-hmm. and what is your rating today by whatever metric you want to use? Just just so we know, like, where things are at. Yeah, so last time I cited my chess.com blitz, my leeches rapid, and my USCF regular rating. And to be honest, I don't really care about any of those ratings anymore except for the USCF regular. Mm. So I'm only going to give my USCF rating because honestly, I don't really care about my chess.com blitz or leeches rapid rating. Uh, I do like post progress updates occasionally if I like do something, but those are ultimately like, that's all practice. It's, you know, it's all about the the OTB stuff. So when we last were on, when I was last on your show, uh, I think I was at 15, 1547. So like about, about 1550. And now as of just this past Tuesday, I'm 1715. Ooh, nice. You passed me. Uh, oh, I did. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So I got all the way to 1756. Whoa. And then uh played in a tournament when I was sick and said it I, oh. I don't care. I'm gonna mm-hmm. push through. And then I had another tournament where I beat all the people I was supposed to beat, lost the people I was supposed to lose to, and lost a bunch of rating points. Oh, I'm down to 1699. No, you're not that far. Yeah. But uh so so you know what? Like you're like, none of the other ratings matter. Mm-hmm. I was saying the same thing. But in that same time, my chess.com rating has gone up like 100 points in rapid. So now I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe that one matters. 
if, I, if my USCF is going down, I need something to go up. Well, you said you played and you were sick, right? Yes, but it doesn't matter. I lost. I lost. Uh, I lost, right. lost is a loss. So. Okay. Well, I think if your if your chess.com rating is like eighteen hundred, then I'm sure that your USCF rating is going to bounce back up at some point because I think that those are those numbers are pretty similar. That's kind of how I feel. I've got a. I'm going to Vegas uh, in June. So okay. I, yeah. That'll be a good. I get six games. No excuses. I am playing in the under twenty one hundred section, which is possibly a bit pretty broad. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. You might meet some of my friends there from the Sacramento Chess Club. I can't make it, but a, a couple of people from my club are going over there, so that'll be fun. Okay, nice. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to connect ahead of time. Um, okay, so it sounds like you've made quite a bit of improvement. So I guess let's let's start with, is there any one or two things you really want to point to and say that? That's the thing. Is it an overall uh, approach? What, what are you giving the credit to? Hmm. So the last tournament that I had played before I came on to your show last time, I lost all my games with white and I was all booked up in the openings that we were playing. Hmm. And uh, just psychologically, I was broken after that event because uh, this is like, these were like the lines that like I was practicing the crap out of, you know, I could like do Yuri Krikun's dynamic Italian game with my eyes closed. I just understood the openings inside and out. And the truth is the opening didn't really matter. Like that's not why I lost the game. The reason why I lost the game was because I got myself into these complicated positions where I just couldn't find my way forward, or I missed a pawn break that I really should have seen. And so a lot of what I ended up doing over this last year i feel like was just learning to actually um win those games and play appropriately for the position which is still hard to do you know if i got myself into a good position by playing complicated ways it's hard to change your mindset to not <laughs> be complicated anymore to simplify and win the game and just convert your material advantage or whatever into a win um so i, I feel like a lot of my practice for that helped me get over that that big hump where i was i was kind of stuck at 1500 for a while and then jumped over 1600 uh you know in one tournament i think i i gained over 100 points because nice. i just had really good um i, I feel like I, I just played pretty well i played more practically so um you know one thing that like really helped with that was uh I think just learning how to like play and win a one game was going through a lot of uh, annotated games, especially games by Lasker. So mm -hmm. I, I um, you know, over the last like year and a half, I've been doing um, lots of annotated uh, master games annotated by other people. Uh, and so most of, most of my chess study time probably was, has been that actually not necessarily openings or, or middle game stuff. Though I did, jump into that quite a bit and you know do some stuff here or there so um but especially studying lasker through john nunn's chess course book that just completely changed the way that i like looked at chess so um and i've been continuing to study master games ever since you know so um yeah i think learning the practical side of winning a one game you know, like, okay, I've got this advantage. Maybe I used my opening knowledge to get an advantage. Maybe I found a cool tactic to pick up a piece, but how do I actually, how do I actually close this out and not make the strange psychological mistakes that players are, I think, prone to make, you know, they do something complicated when the position calls for something simple, stuff like that. 
Um, you know, another thing that really helped me feel confident in playing games. So I think confidence is really important if you want to win a one game, especially if you've got some nerves because you're playing against somebody who's higher rated than you. Um, confidence helps with that a lot. And I think that for me, studying um, strategic end games, which we kind of talked about last time a little bit when, with like timeless technique. But I mean, since then, um, if we're talking about players who play end games, I've studied um, Rubenstein and so much Capablanca. So like Cyrus Lakdawalla's move by move book and um, the classic Capablanca's best endings by Chernev, uh, even his games from Chess Fundamentals because he's got a he's got like fourteen games in that book. Some where he shows his losses too, which is good. Hmm. Uh, and then Alex uh, is, um, um ty- uh, what's it called? The Masters, the Masters Touch, um, oh, Capablanca's end game technique. Yeah, this is a, this is a chessable course. Um, and Alex basically oh. took um, like seven or eight. I don't remember. Maybe 10, 10 games. He, he took a small amount of games, but he analyzed the end games really deeply, really deeply. So, you know, I mean, like between that, uh, I mean, that's probably like 150 Kappa games yeah. and like 30 or 40 Rubenstein games. And so I think just like through playing through those games and getting a feel for strategic end games, how to deal with um, different positional features um, that gave me a lot of confidence. So if I was in a position where I was like, Hey, I'm going to go into an end game, maybe this end game is an equal end game, but at least I feel like I have some ideas and some plans that I can, I can immediately start working with and, and try to, you know, play better. So yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So you're, it sounds like you're saying something like even when you were at your old level of like mid 1500s, you were playing the opening well, you were getting great positions and you were just really struggling of like, what's next? Cause, mm-hmm. cause it seems easy, right? You're like, Oh, I got a winning position. Now I just win. Like the opponent just walks away from the board and I win, but mm-hmm. unfortunately you have to beat them. And yeah, then, especially like on chess.com, they might just resign. Cause they're like, whatever, I'll go play another game. But if someone drove an hour and they get one game today, they're not resigning. They're going to fight you every bit of the way and pull off yep. every trick they can. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're saying it was it was really learning how to win those games. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because um, it's like it's tempting to relax once you've got an advantage. You know, even if you're just like up like a couple pawns, it's tempting to relax. But if your position is at all imbalanced, right? Like if you ignore the pawns and you just look at the pieces and they have a knight and you have a bishop or whatever if the position isn't symmetrical at all other than for the missing pawns there are still plenty of ways for you to go wrong that you you need to account for because they have resources that you don't so yeah that's like that's that's hard that that's actually like one of like one of the hardest things about tournament chess is like dealing with dealing with that plus like you know the pressure on the clock or like it's easy to get nervous and to take too much time because you don't want to blow your position you know, so yeah. like dealing with that, that psychological pressure is like one of the biggest things that I had to overcome too. For Still me, working on also, it. Uh, <laughs> shutting out the narrative, right? Like you get up. So like, much. Okay. So yeah. I'm going to beat this guy. Then I'm going to mm-hmm. get a sandwich and I'm going to have a point and my rating is going to go up 14 points. And while you're thinking about all this, they're trying to figure out how to win. Yes. Yeah. And they do. And you're like, but my narrative what yeah. I had it all worked out. Yeah, no, so many so many games where I 
I have to stop myself from doing that because I'm tempted to do that. Right. Like just this last game that I played on Tuesday, right. Where I like, I had like a pretty good position out of the opening and I'm thinking, man, if I draw this game, I'm not going to be 1700. I'm going to be 1750. If I win this game, I'm almost 1800. Right. And so like thinking that, and that like, that takes up precious time in my brain that I could be using to actually play the game rather than think about what I'm going to talk about on Twitter after I, after I won this game. So, you know, of course I lost it, (laughs) you know, Uh, and I was still happy to lose. uh, And like, I I had a really good performance in the tournament. I mean, the the tournament was um, five games and I only played four of them because I was out sick one, one week, but I had a 1900 plus performance. And I was pretty happy with that, even though I could have had a 2000 plus or 2300 plus performance if I beat this guy, which I didn't, but that's okay. So, but yeah, the shutting down the narrative is huge. (laughs) Yeah, that's tough. Okay, but it sounds like the way you were able to put this into action was one, a mindset thing of like really focusing on that and then also sort of training yourself. It feels like training yourself to look for straightforward moves is the Capablanca way. Like whenever I play play through his games, I'm like, okay, so the way you win at chess is just make easy moves. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay, that sounds easy enough. So when I play, like when I go through one of his games and then I play one of my games, and I'm tempted to make some wild move. I'm like, whoa, why don't we just play like Capablanca? Mm-hmm. Rookie one. Yeah. Rookie one. There we go. Easy move. Yeah. Stockfish yeah. says that that's plus two, and it would rather you play A4, which is plus three, but rookie one makes more sense, right? Yeah. Um, I have a question for you. When was your first experience playing through a Capablanca game? Mm, it was pretty recently, actually. Okay. Um, I had kind of stayed away from him because I was like, oh, He's kind of like his opening theory is nonsense, and mm-hmm. I won't be able to get anything from that. And I've heard he's kind of a simple chess player, and I'm not a simple chess player. I'm complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm nuanced. You're Mr. Catalan. Uh, yeah. So, but then, <laughs> you know, I started um, looking at really Karpov games and how he does it. And I was like, you know, Karpov's great and all, but half of the moves he makes, I don't know what in the heck he's doing. I feel like Campoblanca would be a more understandable version of Karpov. And also, I know he's an endgame master. I need to work on that. So like you, I started going through Chernev's um, collection and seeing both his amazing endgame play and the simplicity. And I think one of my biggest takeaways is uh, you can kind of suck in the opening and still be fine. Yep. Yeah. Which kind of goes against everything that uh, we're sort of trained to think though everyone tells us we shouldn't, right? Everyone's like, don't study openings. But Chessable's like, you sure? I got this new course. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. And you're like, it does look awesome. I'm going to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. It's hard to resist sometimes. Yeah. So my first Capablanca experience was Chernev, but it wasn't his best endings. It was uh, logical chess move by move, right? In the, I think it's the third chapter or whatever. Um, And... like for one, if you just read Chernev's notes on Capablanca, you can tell that like like it approaches hero worship. Uh, but <laughs> but 
honestly, if you just watch the, like the first, this is the first time I'd seen like Capablanca, like like a Capablanca game from start to finish. And I mean, it's like a hot knife through butter. The way he moves the pieces, the subtlety and the elegance and the way he he makes a small, simple move, right? Like his term is petite combination, right? Like where he's mm-hmm. he's like thinking of like this like small one or two step tactic. And it's set up by a very, very subtle move that looks like it does almost nothing, but it's extremely active. And I was just like blown away by how Capablanca um, played his middle games and his end games. And I was like, okay, well, I definitely am looking forward to at some point in the future after studying Morphe and um, Steinitz and Zuckertort and Lasker, I'm really looking forward to, to Capablanca. So Capablanca of all the chess players that I've studied, he's the one that I've studied the most because um, just probably just the choice of books that I chose, you know, I had like multiple, like multiple books that had like 50 plus games in them. So, you know, I went through like four, four pieces of Capablanca I was talking about earlier. So yeah, now, now I just like, I, I, I just like Capablanca. Like, even though like, yes, his opening suck, he gets himself into a lot of trouble in the middle game because he, he's too lazy to study the opening. So he rather not study and just have a crappy position and defend it and then come out the other side somehow unscathed and then checkmate his opponent in the end game. That's just, that's just what, that, that was what his style was, right? Yeah. He kind of like ignored that. And I think it wasn't until his competition became stronger when the hypermodern started showing up on the stage and um, Aliakin had to um, kind of like push against him that Capo got a bit more um, creative and like, he paid more attention to the opening, but you're right. He's not good for openings. You don't want to study Capablanca for openings. So <laughs> I guess here's my question. So you like go through a game of Capablanca and you're like, this looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, but instead of studying his games, I'm going to study all these other people's games. Why not just chuck those chumps to the side mm-hmm. and just go right to Capablanca? What made you think like, no, I want to go through this trajectory. Yeah. So I decided based on, advice from um ben johnson's podcast uh perpetual chess um which i guess you know he also got from willie hendrix i am willie hendrix too that the development of your chess ability um often or of a player's chess ability often reflects the development of chess theory and chess play um as you get stronger you tend to play more and more modern we'll we'll put it that way right Mm -hmm. so in the beginning it's really good to study morphe because you need to know how to deal with wild open tactical positions right so i just decided i was going to go through chess masters uh mostly world champions with some detours there's somebody that i think is important to study that isn't um a world champion that i'm going to go there so morphe's not really a, a world champion he just beat all the best in the world during his day so i decided to study him and then i studied steinitz and then uh lasker um who became my favorite i still think he's my favorite of all the players that i've studied so far because dude dude's like a street fighter man like he just he he just has a completely different tactical, practical, psychological way of playing than anybody before him. And it's really hard to like, it's really hard to find like faults in the way he played. Like usually it's because like he miscalculated something really deeply. It's not because he made an impractical decision, right? He he makes the kind of moves that um, your coach would applaud even though it lost the game because it was the best move that he could think of to find. And that's different from a lot of players where they just inexplicably make some sort of blunder or have a psychological error. It doesn't seem like Lasker was prone to that much. And then after Lasker, Lasker oh, yeah. Question. yeah. 
First, what's the resource you're using for Lasker? I haven't seen a lot of like Lasker compilations. So my source, I I pulled Twitter and the suggestion came to me uh, for John Nunn's chess course. Mm, okay. So it's actually it is a it's a chess course book, right? Or Kindle. That's I I read it on Kindle, um, but it's all about practical lessons for playing chess, and it's all taken from Lasker's games. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's almost like a middle game strategy book plus a games collection. Exactly. Into one. Yeah. Sounds but great. lots, lots of full games, right? Like, so I, yeah. I think there's like almost a hundred, a hundred games oh, in there. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it took me a couple months to go through it. So, um, so after Lasker, Capablanca and wait, wait, then... I have one more Lasker question. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. It seems like no one likes Lasker. Like they suck. Like, like everyone has wrong. Those, like, People who like all the different world champions uh-huh. or like Morphe's the greatest player ever. Mm-hmm. No one ever says Lasker's the best player ever. What's the deal with this? I don't know. So part of it might be that his competition wasn't as good as like later um, champions, right? So Lasker beat like a lot of people. Like he had multiple uh, contentions for the for the championship and he, and he kept it for a really long time. Um, Lasker kind of didn't, he didn't like have his own school of chess. Like he kind of like continued Steinitz, Steinitz's journey or whatever, but he didn't really, I, I feel like he didn't really like expound upon Steinitz very much. Like he wrote a little bit about chess here or there, but he wasn't nearly as like influential. He didn't put out as much works as like Steinitz did or as Capablanca did, or especially like Aliekin did. Right. So he's, I think that like part of it is like people don't know what he contributed. And also like, he's kind of hard to pin down as a player because he i think it's just his style of play was very um it was just very psychological like he he made practical choices to set the most amount of problems before his opponents and so he might not make the objectively like best move or whatever but he he played in a way that put the most pressure on his opponents and i don't think that i, I think that's that's kind of a hard thing to appreciate until you you see the mistakes of other players and yeah. so, yeah, that's really interesting. Does oh, not oh, highlight yeah. that part? Uh, he he highlights that a little bit. Another thing I think that might influence people's negative uh, n- opinions of him is that like Richard Reddy, who I'm currently studying right now, but R- Richard Reddy in I think in the book Masters of the Chessboard, he basically it's almost like an accusation. He accuses, I think it's it sounds like an accusation. He accuses Lasker of deliberately playing bad moves in order to confuse his opponents. So everybody thinks of him as this, like, you know, this old, like, codger sitting at the board, just waiting to swindle you. (laughs) So I think that people thought that he, like, swindled because he he just, he wasn't as good of a player or something. I don't know. Um, But, like, if you, like, none points out in the book that if you just, like, go through it, go through his games, he, uh, like, a lot of his choices are proven correct by the engine. I think that he was just so far ahead of his competition and his time up until Capablanca showed up that like most people didn't really appreciate his genius. I mean, like even like Fisher trashed Lasker and like, I think he like ended up eating his words later. Like he changed his mind and was like, he decided he was too harsh. You know, he repented, but uh, still, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's why Lasker gets a bit of a, oh, like a weird or non-existent or bad rap. So, and I think it's an interesting thing also to think about that. I know at least for myself, I often forget about it. It's like when I'm playing a tournament, 
I am looking to win, but I would say I'm looking to play good chess first mm-hmm. and then win yes. rather than be like, this is a sporting event. What do I have to do to win? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, I don't know. It's hard for me to sort of turn off the like chess study mode and just move into like cutthroat mode of like, okay, yeah. I'm up on the clock. I'm going to make quick aggressive moves because that's going to pressure my opponent. Like I just don't mm-hmm. generally think that way. I'm still like, I got to make the best move. I got to play the yeah. best. So like even emphasizing a little bit, the sporting element, I think is really. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Uh, Lasker is very, just like last thing about Lasker, he's very, very much like a sportsman of the game, right? Like he's not a scientist. Like, like I think like Steinitz or Capablanca were right. He's um he's much more about like setting practical problems. And so that that's like the benefit of studying his games. Cause he, I mean, like he had some pretty, he played some pretty strong players, right? Like you see the way he plays against Steinitz and he's out Steinitzing Steinitz, right? Cause that's the best way to beat Steinitz. But then you see the way that he plays Capablanca and he'll go for the Rui Lopez exchange to, to put, to put pressure on Capablanca to not play passively in the, in the, um, in the opening in the middle game. And then he beats Capablanca by sack or not sacking, but by trading on C6 in, in the Rui Lopez, which is just amazing to see when you see it, you're like, Oh, I get it. Cause like most people wouldn't do that, but Lasker's like, I want to win this. And like last thing about Lasker, even after Capablanca took the title or, you know, after Capablanca ceremonially ceremoniously defeated um uh Lasker in the in the match because Lasker had already given the title to Capablanca. So it was more just like a ceremony of playing through the game. So Lasker um so that Capablanca could prove it. Mm-hmm. Uh Lasker continued to finish ahead of um of like all of like like Capablanca and Aliekin and all of the other all the other strong players, Lasker continued to finish first in a lot of strong tournaments after he lost the championship. Mm-hmm. He never beat Capablanca in a championship. He never took the title back, but he was still finishing ahead. He was like an amazing tournament player, not necessarily as much a match player, but he was really good at playing tournaments. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's like, that's different. That's different yeah. from a lot of players. It's so, like uh, Magnus today. He's not the champion, but he's still beating everyone in tournaments. Yeah. 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 So that's, yeah, that's, I mean, we've built a lot of, um, era about Lasker, but that's that's one of my favorite parts about him. Do you think so. studying Lasker actually helped you win the one games because it's really helping you focus on like putting mm-hmm. problems in front of your opponents, playing practically, yep. um, being a sportsman, and actually winning rather than just being like, I gotta find the best move. I gotta find exactly, the best move. yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely, yeah, and also it kind of like playing through Lasker is kind of like therapy for my like opening anxiety. Cause mm. I would really like to get a good position out of the opening. And I still do, but I was, you know, like once I like had like played through like what Lasker played and Lasker didn't, he wasn't like a critical opening theoretician. Mm. Um, he still put practical problems before his opponents and found ways to outplay them. And right. so seeing somebody do that over and over and over um, was really helpful to transforming the way I, I look at the, the the whole game, basically. Gotcha. And what a great segue to Capablanca, who really didn't care that much about the opening or so it was. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Yeah, if don't. He chessable, yeah. he'd be like, yeah. no, nah, man, I just do endgame puzzles on chessable. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah. I mean, we talked about Capablanca already though. Like I, I don't think I can overstate how much just playing through a bunch of his end games have really like transformed the way I look at end games. Like I'm already like, I automatically build plans when I'm looking at, at an end game position. If I'm, if I'm in, in one that I can, I can try to figure some things out. And I think that's just from playing through a bunch of annotated games by Capablanca, just like, yeah. you know, I just picked it up. And so what's been interesting is like playing through the games of his contemporaries. So I started with Rubenstein, who is like just an amazing genius. Uh, his play is just so, so good. Um, you know, in some days he's stronger than Capablanca, right? Uh, and then uh, I went through Nimzovich, which was like interesting. I didn't, I, I went through, I, these are all move by move books for the Everyman chess books. Um, and now I'm currently going through Ready uh, move by move. And uh, actually the Ready book in particular it starts out really slow. I don't really like the way Reddy plays, but like once you get to about the New York 1924 tournament, which Elliot can wrote a book on, and I'm going to go through that book too. But once Reddy gets there, like there are so many good cases for playing like either the, like the English with an early G3 or the Reddy with knight F3 and then C4. Um, I found that like, I'm starting to understand that opening. I don't even play that opening, but I, I understand it a bit more because I've been watching ready play. And so that's like one of the, the fun benefits, but also picking up uh, different, picking up ways that the hyper modern ethos can positively affect my play because I'm more of a classical player, right? Like last time we were talking, I was playing the Italian. Now I'm playing the Rui Lopez. Mm. And um that's very different from what Reddy would play in his later career. And so gaining an appreciation from uh both Nimzovich and, and Reddy about hypermodern principles has been really interesting as well. Uh which I guess like like that's kind of the idea behind going through players yeah. in chronological order. You're learning ideas and they're being introduced to you as you're learning other ideas and you're solidifying different concepts and principles. And then you're getting introduced to the next thing that was happening in, in chess history. And so, yeah, that's, let's, that's really fun. Let's dive a bit into how you do annotated games. Then, Cause it sounds like you've gone through a ton of them. So how much time do you feel like you're spending on each of these games? Um, so it depends on the, how complicated the annotations are and how, how deep the, the analysis goes. So I set up a lead chess study and I, for each book that I'm going through or whatever. And then I just <clears throat> play through the games on that Lee chess study. And I go through all of the analysis and um, I'm using my computer. So I'm right clicking and drawing arrows and circles and stuff to more help, help me visualize what's happening. Right. Especially if the author points out a particular maneuver, you know, I'm using different color arrows and circles to, to understand that. And um and at least get the ideas down in my head about what's going on. And so I'll spend, you know, like my current like training program or whatever is I have a major and the major is whatever the thing that is I'm studying, I have to study that for an hour a day. Mm. And so I'll study a game or two or maybe three, depending on how complicated and long the game is. It might take me an hour, maybe 70 or 80 minutes. And I'm just playing through it on the LHS study board and just making sure that I understand if I have any questions um, I take a look at the position. If I still have questions, I might turn on the engine just to like get like a hint about what is happening. And then if I get the idea, I turn the engine off and I keep going, etc. Um, so I just play through all the games and all the notes and 
and I put them in a Lee chess study and maybe one day I'll come and revisit them. Haven't revisited too many, but they're there. The, you know, they're kind of like in my memory bank a little bit. So, so you're um, not yeah. aggressively using the engine. Are you doing guess the move at all? Or are you just kind of like putting in the move, trying to figure out why it was made? Mm-hmm. Are you dealing with that on like the move by move level? Yeah, I don't do I don't do guess the move mostly because it's inconvenient to do it on a Kindle. So, um, you know, I just have a Kindle window on one side and then I have Lee chess on the other side. I'm just using Kindle for windows on my computer. So, um, but, uh, if there's a prompt because the move by moves have like question and answer prompts or whatever, and it says, Hey, what would you do? Or if like the author, uh, just like says in passing, there's a mate in such and such here, then I will stop and I'll try to like solve that. And like, I'll take a look at the position and, and whatnot. So yeah, I don't do, I don't do too much guess the move though. Occasionally, um, if a move pops out to me, if, if my subconscious just suggests a move, I will, you know, draw an arrow and then take a look at the, the next note to see if I got it correct. So, you know, I'm doing a little bit of guessing here or there, but it's not really about guessing as much as just like sitting and watching a master analyze another master. So. Yeah. And what is it that you like so much about the move by move uh, version of these books? Because there's you know lots of different choices you could have. Well, um, they're pretty reasonably priced on Kindle. So it cost me $10 to get a collection of NIMS of which books are ready books that are like heavily annotated in certain cases. Um, And sometimes that's, that's like the most convenient thing to find because there aren't necessarily as many good collections, you know, earlier. Um, Mm. So, you you know, like you can, like there are certain players, like I'm still like in the past, right? So like other than like everybody has written books about Morphe, but not a lot of books have been written about Steinitz. Um, You know, I am, uh, I am H- Willie Hendricks just came out with the ink war, which is all about Steinitz. And it's actually more like about like Zuckertort and Steinitz. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's hard to find games like that unless you want to like go digging in like a chess book collectors site, which I'm not particularly interested in. You know, I think it would break my bank. So, um, so that it's just incidental that the players that I've been looking for uh, the, the most, the most uh, appealing books are the, are the move by move series, but I'm like for Ali Ikin, I don't think I'm going to use move by move. I'm probably going to pick one of his own annotated game collections to, to play through. Okay. That makes and sense. And then same with like Fisher, there's, you know, like when I get there, there's going to be tons of books about Fisher. So I don't necessarily have to use the move by move series or whatnot. So if I see something that I think looks better then I won't, I'll, I'll skip the move by move for that one. I didn't do move by move for Lasker, right? I use John Dunn's chess course. Yeah. So, yeah. I will say I do love the move by move, like you said, where it has all these prompts where it'll be like, mm-hmm. what do you think? Why didn't he do this here? And I love how some of the times you're like, huh, that's a great question. I don't know. And the, and locked the wall would be like, I don't know either. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay. And then other yeah. times it's like, well, here's the reason. And there's like a really detailed reason maybe it's opening theory maybe it's just mm-hmm. something else um i find those prompts to be really good too there every now and then you know i kind of start zoning a little bit i'm, I'm like i can mm-hmm. feel myself just making moves and then the prompts like whoa stop man take yeah. a moment settle yourself where are we at here i really appreciate that yeah that's that's an it's interesting when you you have like a master who has the benefit of you know existing 80 years after a game was played and when he's scratching his head, yeah, I find that interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I like, uh, 
think it was locked a while who said like i don't like to give a lot of question marks to the old masters like yeah lived in a different world uh-huh. i find that to be interesting yeah there's a lot there's a lot of uh funny anecdotes in Capablanca move by move he wrote that one where he's he's you know speaking in for you says you're not going to give this one a question mark so yeah Yeah, i I find that kind of entertaining (laughs) it's kind of funny okay so it seems like annotated games (laughs) huge huge part of this process also you know some strategy with john nunn essentially a strategy book with annotated games Mm -hmm. Uh, anything else you want to point to where you feel like yeah this was a this was a big help in uh my improvement it sounds like you've switched from the italian game to the roy lopez do you think that helped at all was there any (laughs) reasons for that switch uh so i switched so i kind of got converted to the Rui lopez from the italian game by playing through another game collection it was the mammoth uh, the mammoth book of the world's greatest chess games. Mm. There are so many good Rui Lopez games in there that I like, I just enjoyed playing through them, especially like watching like Fisher uh, versus Spassky. There are a couple, I think a couple Fisher Rui Lopez games in there that I just found so impressive. And so like the annotations and the notes were really good. So I was like, you know what? I think, I think I want to play the Rui Lopez after watching it get played really well. And it made, then you started to make sense. Plus I wasn't having the, the most like best results with the Joko Pianissimo, which I had been playing for a while. Um, though I had conscience conscientiously chose the, the Joko Pianissimo because I was planning on at some point switching to the Rui Lopez. Oh. But I feel like if I want to, I mean, I mean, this is this is an audacious goal, but I want to become a master. If I want to become a master, I feel like I need to like learn how to like play classical good chess positions with lots of strategy. You know, even if I'm not going to play the Rui Lopez forever, I still need to get into the mindset of how do I take an edge and maintain it and grow that edge into a plus one position or a plus two position, right? And then just continue doing that over and over and over. So I did it mostly for my chess growth. I just want to become a better player. And I think that's one good way to do it because the positions you get in the Rui Lopez are just so rich. This is also true of the Joko Pianissimo, but I was just so convinced by watching really good players play play it or playing through their games. So that's why I switched to the Rui Lopez. I'm not sure that I'm like a better player because of that, um, though I do think that I'm starting to get the Rui Lopez, which is turning me into a better player. I think that there's there's a good case to be made that like there's something redeemable about every opening that you play. There are ideas in every opening that you can apply, maybe not to another opening, but to a middle game that shows up in another opening, right? Yeah. Like in the Rui Lopez, this is just one example. It's very often a good idea for White to play a A4, after black has played B5, just because it like adds tension and it's not usually good for black to take on A4. And so that idea, just having that in my bag of tricks, you know, I found moments where like, okay, I need to make a pawn break in order to introduce tension into this position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. So that's um stuff like that, you know, that can that you can learn that from any like opening, right? Like if you like play the Banco Gambit, you'll find ways that you want to open the A and B file, even if you're not playing the Banco in that moment. But that's like a very Banco Gambity idea, et cetera. So stuff like that. So like I'm sure it's helped me in in like yeah. theoretical ways as well. But yeah. I will say the Roy Lopez has been and <laughs> is still my favorite opening. Yeah. If I could get all my opponents to agree to play E5 after I play E4, uh-huh. not a switch to D4. Uh-huh. Uh, so what I, I love the Roy Lopez for the same things you're talking about. It's such yeah. a 
rich opening. I think it really teaches you that concept of playing on both sides of the board. Yes. The day when I discovered A4. So I had like seen some people do it and I was like, what kind of nonsense is this? But when I truly understood, ah, what A4 does is it produces tension on that side of the board also. Now mm-hmm. black has to deal with both sides of the board and I can go back and forth like Karpov and now I'm here and now I'm there. Yep. Yeah. That's when I really fell in love with the Roy Lopez <laughs> and was like, I will never switch until every opponent I had played the French and the Sicilian and the Caracan. I was like, all right, I'm switching. <laughs> I'm sick of this. Sad day for me. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the one problem is that E4 gives gives black so many viable options but that's also like that's that could be a benefit depending on how much time you want to spend drilling lines on chessable but you know i don't mind doing that yeah yeah you're (laughs) are you still like a chessable beast like you were i think at the top of my friends list i'm not sure i um so i recently broke like the 30 million points mark and i I wasn't even paying attention to that right but i actually feel like i've been using chessable less uh or at least i've been i've been treating openings on chessable differently so like i have like a thousand moves in my queue right now that i just haven't looked at or whatever i'm more like chunking my chessable work uh into like specific time periods rather than you know kind of like brainlessly turning on chessable at the beginning of the day and getting my reviews down to zero. Uh, I found that um, if I want to play one E4, I can't do that because I will just never play games. I'll, pl- I'll just be doing chessable to keep my reviews at zero. So um, I tend to study, I still do lines a huge chunk at a time, you know? So like if there's a chapter that has 20 lines on a variation that I want to learn, I'll just do that chapter and I'll do that until I feel like I understand most of the lines and then I'll pause it. And then also Chessable put out a priority lines feature, which is nice. Yeah. So I don't necessarily set my courses to priority only, but I will pause non-priority lines in order to keep my review count down. I'm constantly revisiting. Do I actually need to study this line or do I feel pretty comfortable about it? Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes I'll just carry it like a, you know, like a balance on a credit card and just like pay it later if i feel like okay now i need to review some lines on this or whatever so i pause a lot yeah. a lot of stuff now so I yeah still using chess all the time but that's yeah i, I think it's a really important point with opening studies <laughs> it's kind of like you might need to put in some time to sort of get a hold of your opening but the longer you stay with it the less you need to do that so like i play yes. every tuesday and i know what color i'm going to be ahead of time mm-hmm. it used to be like Okay, I'm black tonight. And I would have to spend like an hour going through all my Carol Khan lines. And now I'm just mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to do that at all, actually. I would yeah. rather do like a little bit of a calculation exercise to warm mm-hmm. up my brain because I know my openings well enough. Do I know them all 25 moves deep? No, but that's not the reality of who I'm playing anyway, right? I just exactly. have a handle on the plans and the general moves. And I, I opened Chessable. And I use Chessable quite a bit, and uh, you are—you have six times more than me on the leaderboard, and you are my number one friend by a huge margin. That's so, funny. There you go. You have three times. The I'm still there. John Bartholomew, according to my leaderboard here. Dang. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're finding you're spending a little less time on openings and making it more targeted. Like when you feel rusty on something, right. Then you're revisiting it rather than just every day spending most of your time on openings. Yeah. Yeah. So a a resource that I use for this, and I'm sure somebody else has mentioned it on your show before, but openingtree.com. So I just use that to look at every month. I I look at my openings to see, 
or look at the games and which openings were played and and how well did I do against this particular opening and you know or this sub variation and if I feel like I'm if I have an unacceptable score, then I will drill that opening mostly be- not because I need to know the move orders of everything. It's more just so that I can't because chessboard lines are so long that you are often getting middle game ideas in your opening study. So I'll I'll revisit lines in order to be reminded of the middle game, what I should be doing there, because most games I don't lose in the opening. I lose sometime later when I've made some sort of patter mistake. And so yeah. that's when restudying those lines on chessable is helpful. I had a funny conversation with my coach about a month ago where I was like, all right, I'm trying to rank the things I need to work. I need to work on this, this. And I said a couple opening variations that I felt a little rusty on. And he was like, dude, your opening is fine. You've mm-hmm. never been behind in the opening in a single loss you showed me. Don't worry mm-hmm. about your opening. Exactly. You're bad in plenty other areas of chess. <laughs> I, I was like, all yeah. right. I mean, I'm not saying much opening. I'm just saying a little. He's like, no, don't work on the openings at all. Just yeah, stuff you're bad at. Yeah, and honestly, half the games that I play at my club, I'm out of book. You know, within the first few moves, anyway, because like either my opponents don't study openings, or they know that I study openings, so they just play something else. You know, there's certain uh, people that I've learned to not prepare against because they will play literally anything, and in the end, I'm totally fine. Right. Like I, I I know how to apply principles and uh, make the correct moves. I know when I need to calculate to make sure that an idea works or, you know, stuff like that, you know, so that honestly, like I never lose a game because I misunderstood the opening. I think the last time that happened was like a month or like maybe three months ago. Hmm. And the time before that, I can't remember. I don't remember a time that I like I lost a game because I was screwed out of the opening. I I fell into a trap once like two months ago. And then other than that, you know, I've been fine. Now studying openings probably helped me with that because I'm understanding the moves and why they're being made. So I can I can reason my way through something that I've never seen before and I can understand the the critical moment and like go from there. And that's probably in part because studying openings helped me with that, but I've never lost a you know, maybe once I've lost a game because I, I just completely misinterpreted the opening, you know, other than that, it's been something else. I guess my question is this, then do you feel like it was worth it investing that much time in openings because you sort of come out the other side, feeling so confident about the opening, just knowing you don't have to worry about it. Or like if you had your journey to do over again, would you be like, "Mm, I would have dialed back. Uh, at least somewhat on the openings to improve sort of these other areas of my game. Well, I'm a kind of person who likes knowledge, right? Like I like knowing things and understanding things. And so I don't really have much regret on the opening because I don't feel like studying the opening, like hurt me. Right. Like, I think if I was a, like a weaker player who had started chess by studying openings i would regret that time but like the first time i started studying openings i was already like 1600 on chess.com blitz right that's the first time i really started studying openings in earnest so the time spent studying openings i don't like i don't actually think like i don't regret it or whatever it's i still wouldn't suggest it for most people i don't think that people need to like study openings that much but uh, i enjoy it and i i do think it's helped me in other areas you know like i'm you know i'm, I'm in camp uh, openings are good actually <laughs> yeah. right so it also yeah. sounds like you're not just blindly memorizing lines but you're trying to understand the resulting positions i think that's the yes. danger coaches are worried about is that you're just going to fire up chessable 
review your line, not even understand there's a middle game afterwards and just be like, cool, I got it. But it sounds yeah. like you're using chessable to get to the middle game and then sort of stopping there and being like, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, and I, I think that coaches really do have, you know, their students best in mind when they say not to study openings. Uh, I think, and I, it's not that I think that I'm a, an exception. I think that I just, I do things a little, I, I, I think I do it better than most the average person who's just diving head head first into, into studying openings. So yeah. yeah, that's just, that's just my thought, you know, but that's, you're right. I'm looking for a middle game that I find acceptable much more than I'm looking for a knockout blow in the opening. So, yeah. yeah I think that's an important <laughs> difference. You said in our communication that one of the things that helped you was uh, the say chess accountability group. How, how was mm-hmm. that added to your improvement? Uh, it helps me know what I'm actually studying because mm. <laughs> it's really easy for me to, you know, run through chessable for, if I have like 500 moves to review, I could spend an hour doing that and I wouldn't even think about it. Um, but did I spend that, did I spend any amount of time close to that playing like rapid games or did I spend any time studying tactics or whatever? So it's kind of like, like part of the accountability isn't just like the hour count, you know, cause he, he split those into different groups. It was, um, just being able to like, see what I'm actually doing, what I'm studying and like being, uh, conscious of it. And also if I look at my list of things that I've done, I can see, oh, I haven't studied this in like a couple days. Maybe I should do puzzle survival for 30 minutes or something, right? Um, and it also just helps me keep track of when I've done my, you know, my daily requirement of one hour of studying. You know, at this point, I'm studying ready for an hour a day or more, right? But at least I'm I'm tracking it. And so I, I like using the app that he has set up for that. And also like checking in every week and just like talking with other people who are doing the same thing you're doing to see how they're doing. How did you do this week? What you doing next week? You know, what didn't work out? What worked? That's like, that's been really helpful just to have like a community of people to talk with. Well, it's like chess punks is kind of like that, but this is like a specific like group. That's really about training, not just like playing chess, but training and like, you know, putting your money where your mouth is as far as like how much time you're going to put into the game. So that's, I think that was like, that's really helpful. I can't attribute ELO gains to that necessarily. I just think that it, it, it helps me keep going. It's a good motivator. Okay. Yeah. I started doing that briefly and I don't know what it was for some reason. I was like, I don't feel like pressuring myself to click all these boxes. But you know what? That was when I was feeling more self-motivated and doing more. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't need this to keep me going. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like thinking about last night. And I was like, ah, I could have studied more games. I just didn't. And I did other stuff. And mm-hmm. if I had been checking boxes, I would have been like, oh, wait, I didn't check that box. I need to get on that. So I don't know. Now I'm rethinking this. Maybe I, maybe I need to uh, you know, rejoin this idea. Because you said you found it helpful. I, I yeah. I mean, like part of it is, I, to me, it's not like obligatory. I just like doing it. Right. Which is like, I think that's like the hard thing about chess is that there's certain aspects of chess study that feel more like we're obliged to do it than we are to, to enjoy it. And, um, I try not to, to worry about that or whatever. Like part of it is I just really like studying games or I really like playing rapid games, or I really like, um, you know, having, knowing that I have one thing that I need to do for an hour a day that just helps me keep going and, and, you know, keeps me motivated. Um, you know, part uh, th- that's really like a Kostya Kavutsky's idea was to just set whatever thing you want to do for an hour a day. You do that until it's done, 
you know, one hour at a time. And then you can do whatever other stuff you want to do that kind of helped me sort of rein in all of my chessable purchases because, <laughs> you know, I might like have like five or six, you know, half eaten sandwiches on the table, but yeah. there's this new sandwich that looks really, really good. It's oh, got yeah. bacon on it. And uh, so I'm just going to ignore all of these other sandwiches and they're just going to like become moldy. Right. Yep. There's like mental sandwiches in my brain. Yeah, right. So yeah, I'm just yeah. getting moldy mental sandwiches in my brain and I'm, so focused on this bacon sandwich and then i forget all the benefits of everything else that i was studying before so this is nice because okay yeah i'm gonna buy a book on kindle or i'm gonna buy this chessable book but i first have this thing that i'm gonna finish doing i committed to doing it an hour a day until it's done and so that's been really helpful as well yeah i also really just like the idea of being able to track over time what i did for my first year mm -hmm. i had a google doc and i could I can flip through that and be like, oh, that's right. I read this book for this long, yeah, two months. And now I have none of that. And I'm really regretful. I'm like, wait, what did I do in the last year? And I have to look mm -hmm. at my shelf and be like, oh, yeah, I read that. I read two chapters of that. Mm -hmm. I, I just love the idea of being able to look back. Yeah. Right. Another thing you told me that, that I really struggle with, because I'm on like, I don't know, 1,200 days of chess. Like mm -hmm. taking a break. How does one take a break? You said you've taken some breaks and they've been helpful. Please convince me that I should take some breaks. Yeah. So <clears throat> I I always do something chessy each day, right? So my chessable streak is like in, I it's almost in the 1100s now. So okay. I might like do like one variation a day or whatever. And just to keep the streak because I like having the streak. And also it's, it's helpful if you want to beta test a course or whatever, you need to have a streak to do that. Wow. And sometimes they do beta tests. So, um, but as far as like taking a break, I mean, like the most like recent break that I'm, I'm still on, actually, like I haven't played rapid games in like a month. And it's not wow. because I got like necessarily like sick of rapid games as much as it is. I just really wanted to watch the show Farscape. Have you ever watched Farscape? <laughs> no. OK, know. it's like an old sci fi show, uh, yeah. but I really wanted to watch it. And my wife's not interested in watching it and my kids can't watch it. So I just got to wait until everybody goes to bed, which yeah. was usually when I would play rapid chess. Right. Oh, okay. um, but uh, I I. Don't feel guilty about not playing rapid chess because I'm still getting my reps in. I'm playing blitz games with increment. I'm still studying or whatnot. And when I'm done binging all Farscape, I'll go back to playing rapid and I won't feel bad about it. Oh, that's <laughs> but, amazing. Wow, what yeah, a like, healthy attitude. <laughs> well, I, like I had to like learn it, but like what happened before, like, so before it was, it was, uh, uh bef before Farscape, I took a break because I was playing God of War on my playstation uh, right uh, so just like learning or remembering that other things are still fun to do or, or whatnot okay. I'll, I'll jump back into rapid games when i'm done with that and i'll be okay so this is great because i just got legend of zelda tears of the kingdom <laughs> and it's super fun but i only have like five minutes a day to play because i'm like whoa kevin you gotta go do your chess work you gotta do your family work you gotta do your school work and after all that's done you get six and a half minutes to play tears of the kingdom and it's an open world game. So all that means is like I get to wander like a couple feet and then I'm like, all right, I found an apple. Cool. I guess maybe I'll find. An apple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's something to be said. Like, do you do you enjoy the concept of a movie that's only 90 minutes long? Sure, yeah. Right? Great. Like, because like most movies, they're like two hours long or more these days. And so like yeah. whenever I watch a 90-minute movie, I'm like, oh, that was nice. It's oh, yeah. like I liked it. The ride is done. It's over. And yep. I could do that again. And I won't feel exhausted and tired. And so open world games, you know, like I'm 
even though there's like traditionally like the games that I play the most, like I don't have time to play those anymore. And if people could make smaller games so that I could continue my chess habit, but also be able to play some cool video games here or there every once in a while, yeah. that I would mean, be great. Nick, I found several apples. I think I'm crushing it. You are know. you are crushing it. I mean, I found zero apples because I don't have any Zelda games, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, you should get one because the apples are plentiful. Now that I have kids, I can I can justify buying a Nintendo Switch sometime. So, there you go. Okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. We're we're getting low on time. Oh my goodness. So another thing you talked about was dealing with nerves before a tournament. So what does that mean? Were you, were you getting really? worried were you worried about rating were you worried about just losing what was going on with your nerves you know i think it's just like the the kind of like nervousness that you get when you're about to enter a competition because there's somebody across the table from you who wants to win the game just as badly as you do and so you know i just i feel a little nervous uh i i get a little psyched up i really want to play i really want to win i really want to post on twitter at 11 o'clock at night after barely analyze the game saying this is how awesome i am i beat this person you know which is why i posted all of my wins from this like most recent tournament and then this last one i still haven't analyzed because you know i just haven't i'm not as excited to analyze a loss even though like we had a really good post-mortem afterwards anyway so but I, i need to write it down but um yeah just like just nerves from from competing you know i didn't really understand that that i could actually compete at something until i played chess mm. so you know maybe it's just uh i'm still learning how to how to play perfect like a professional or whatever but um yeah just like dealing with that or like even like feelings of i don't want to call it imposter syndrome but like what am i doing here am i really like is this really worth the time does does anybody really care and in the end mostly nobody cares like really i'm doing this for me right and i have to i have to remember that but sometimes i'm like you know i'm i'm worried that that i'm i'm just gonna look like you know like just a duffer i don't know just like you know like man i suck or whatever and so yeah i have to deal with like feelings of like nervousness and like doubt because um like like another thing i like really like um like like messes with my head is like sometimes like i see somebody who's like having really good results on like the chess punks twitter Mm -hmm. and then i'm just like why can't i be as good as that person or why can't i be as strong as that person yeah Uh, which is like really silly it's like it's the kind of question that like has no satisfying answer because the question really isn't like it's it's a question of comparison which I don't think is necessarily really healthy to do. Um, but I still, I still fall into traps of that. Right. So yeah, just working through that sort of thing, uh, nerves with myself or even like doubts and frustrations and like relation to other people mm-hmm. just have to remind myself I'm playing chess. Cause I like to play chess. I play it cause I love this game. I play it because like, I'm going to get an, if I get a national master title in the next eight years, you know, I'm going to have this national master title and almost nobody's going to care and it's going to do nothing to improve my life objectively. I'm just going to be really glad that I did it. Right. Um, and that's why I play the, like, that's why I play the game. Like this is a personal challenge. It's something that I want to do for me. And that there's not very many things that are like that for me, but this is one that I, I just want to do it and being reminded, this is why I do it. Cause I love the game. I love, the community of people that I'm with. I love being able to like talk about a game and like see beauty in this abstract board game, you know, that happens on 64 checkered squares. That's, that's why I do it. And so when I remind myself of that, 
my nerves go away. Yeah, I remind myself, you know what? You're going to lose to so many more people before you get to 2200 rating. If you even get to 2200 rating, you were going to see so many people break their rating goals or get NM or FM uh, in your entire life. As long as you're on Twitter, reading anything that has the hashtag chess punks on it, right? Like this is just, this comes with the territory and I got to be okay with it. So working through that, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think the thing I struggle the most with, with interacting with others is I guess like a lack of confidence in my own training program, right? It's like, mm. I talk to a new guest each week who has some cool approach. I listen to the perpetual chess podcast or someone on there with a new book or approach. that sounds amazing. And it's like if there were infinite Kevins and I could just each one of them could adopt one of those approaches, mm -hmm. I think all of those Kevins would be doing better than this version who's like, oh, I should try that. I should try that. It's like, yeah, no, don't try everything. Just stick with one thing. But then the question is, which one, Nick? Which one do you stick with? Yeah, um, I, I mean, to be honest, the thing that I'm like really glad about starting was the master master game uh, studies right because like i want to go through everybody from morphe up until i mean at this point dingley ren right mm. you know i want to go through so like i'm looking for like i already have my my roadmap kind of charted out seeing how players play in you know the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s right like uh, after ali Eakin, i'm looking really looking forward to botvinnik and the entire like soviet era of chess because there's so many good players not just the world champions i'm going to be looking at bronstein i'm going to be looking at carries there's all sorts of players that i want to study and um like the thing that kind of like encourages me with that is seeing how like being cognizant of how especially capablanca and lasker have affected my play Right. And I think I play, I think I'm a better player than I was a year ago. And I think that part of that is because I studied those guys. And so like I have like a little like just like very small, slight, subtle changes in my play, you know, results that kind of encourage me to keep doing what I'm doing. Right. And it's like so it's kind of like self-guided, but with the advice of other people. And like I feel pretty confident about that, which is kind of weird. I don't think I don't know if I deserve to feel confident about it because I'm just, you know, I'm a 1700 rated dude. I'm not a master. But um, I do think that, you know, there's wisdom in what Willie Hendricks said. And so that's kind of why I'm, I'm following that advice for this moment. You know, it's I mean, like the end of that that time of studying all those players, if I haven't like gotten to where I want to be, that's OK, because there's so many other things that I know. Like I'm taking notes on things that I could be studying and then I'll start jumping on those as well. And then I'll be OK. So, yeah. But dealing with that, the the doubt. That, that's the hard thing. Like, ah, oh, yeah. is this really the best idea dealing with that? <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel your pain. So, yeah. yeah. And the funny thing is I'm realizing, I think I had some of the most enjoyable times and the most feeling like I was getting better when I was going through Karpov's games every day. Mm -hmm. um, just like it really helped me see moves I would have never considered. And I started considering them in my own games, especially the idea of like, You've developed the bishop to e2. That piece is developed. And then you're mm -hmm. like, you know what's best here? Bishop f1 and just like tucking it back now that I've castled and moved the rook out of the way. I would have never in a million years considered that move before. Mm -hmm. And now I consider it. Now, do I play it at the wrong time sometimes? Yes. But sometimes I mm -hmm. play it and the engine's like, look at you. Look at you, little Karpov. You learned something. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, here's your blue exclamation mark. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's only slightly better than this other move. That would have been easier. But still, <laughs> you did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I so. that's 
that's the the best part of studying all the games by different players is you're you just continue to like accumulate things in your bag of tricks that you hopefully remember when the time comes to pull out so yeah yeah i think i think the answer or an answer for me is to keep looking at games and just looking at kind of what you're doing going through different people instead of doing a thousand karpov games you know I have a pretty good handle on his style. <laughs> it might be time to move on to somebody else. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah, you only have so much time. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately. Wow, Nick. Well, this was great. I'm so so excited that you were able to make such uh, gains in both your knowledge and then put them into skill and actually increase your rating. Um, and it's been fun to hear uh, how you've done it. So congrats, man. Big deal there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy about it. I'm 35 points away from my goal for this year. I'd like to get to 1750 before 2023 is over. And then after that, the stretch goal will be like 1800. So Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. my next goals are 1800. I thought I was going to hit it, man. I got to 1756 and it was mm-hmm. uphill and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm beating 1800s. I'm there. And then uh, 1699 is a little, a little bit far away. But I did hit 1800chess.com, so I guess I guess one of the goals is, is uh, reached. I think you're on your way. This is just a small setback. I really do think you're on your way. Oh, I like that. We'll go one step back, 17 steps forward. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> and maybe maybe I'll find another Apple in the Zelda game. You know, we got everything happening. Yeah. <laughs> that would be like the, the perfect package. Exactly. 1800 rating, 18 apples. Nick, you know what I did do though? I built a boat and sailed it to a shrine. I was like, "Ooh, wow! I'm really doing it now." Okay. <laughs> uh, but Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, any any place people can get a hold of you if they want to follow up with uh, all your great ideas here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can just find me on Twitter. I'm at Nick Weissel. Okay, cool. That seems like a good place. Uh, all right. Well, I think we're gonna wrap it up here. Nick, awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. For all of you out there. I hope this is your re- your week when you nick it and you just like jump up and figure out how to win the games you're supposed to win. But if you're like me and you lose all three games that you were supposed to win when the computer says you're up three and a half, it happens. It happened to me at least. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out together and I'll see you all next week. Bye everybody.